Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back again to this week's edition of Unhedged in a pandemic COVID-filled world. And today, today's broadcast is actually mask-free, and we are implementing safe distancing. Norman, I think you and I, from a safe distancing perspective, how far apart are we now? About 2,500 miles, 4,000 yeah, miles we, apart? We've got to be about 25, 3,000 miles apart. So that, <laughs> I think that's that's a good distance. <laughs> I think I think yeah, I think we've followed the protocol there. And I I want to you know for our listeners. I want to say again that, you know, all the podcasts that we've had and, and the fellows that we've talked to, uh, male and female alike, uh, Norman, I've, I've always looked forward to our conversations, not the least of which is we can respectfully disagree. Uh, and, and, and with that, I, I'd be remiss if as a friend and, and peer and professional colleague, if I didn't say to you, there's never been a conversation that we've had where I, I later don't come back to two or three points and find myself Googling them or researching them and saying, you know, darn it, he was correct. And, and, and he, he, he was uh, uh, absolutely right in what he was saying. And for our listeners, um, Norman, why don't you give them a quick, I, I never do you justice and, and I'm gonna put you on the spot because I think you're a little too humble sometimes. What, what's the best way for folks to get their arms around who you are and go forward, why, why they should con seriously consider listening to you a little bit more. But what, what, what's your nine to five gig? For our listeners, yeah. So my nine to five gig, I am the chief investment officer for private banking for a Swiss private bank called Union Bankier Privé. It is a, a large family-owned bank uh, here in Switzerland. Um, but I think if you look back, uh, my the bulk of my career uh, began uh, in Asia um, uh, during the Asian crisis. Um, I'm American by birth and have now spent uh, just about uh, eight years here in Europe. Um, and so one of the things I like to tell people, uh, it is uh, not only experience uh, in different regions of the world, but being able to really draw and relate those experiences together and realizing that uh, the old saying that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes mm -hmm, really does mm -hmm. make sense. So that's, <laughs> that's what I like to do. I like to tie it all together and see what's repeating. That's great. That's great. And, and you know, the, the and why don't we, you know, all the jokes and sarcasm that we're throwing out there relative to COVID. Um, let me let me kick this off with with a quote that I haven't and actually came up today uh, in the lunch we were talking about earlier. I was very fortunate earlier to have lunch with the uh, the ambassador, the Argentinian ambassador to Singapore. 
And we were talking today, and, and I, you know, we were talking about just the sheer amount of money and you know stimulus that's being created in these systems. And and I, there was one fellow there who I have to keep nameless, runs a, a big fixed income shop, and I, I quoted, I, I asked him the same question that Jeffrey Gunlock has been saying, which is, he said, you know, in today's environment, when you when you look at what the the Treasury and Fed are doing to stimulate the economy, i.e., just printing money. In, in you know in whatever form we want to call it, and he he asked the interesting question. He said, you know, why do we even need taxes? We have low rates, the ability to to print whatever we need, and 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 so you know, kind of using that tongue in cheek question to you to start, but but behind that, Norman, how many bullets do we have left in the gun relative to COVID? Because what my fear is, Singapore effectively gave a three month bridge loan to everybody here. And with a view that, hey, we're going to go through this three-month lockdown pretty hard. But you and I as Americans, especially, you know, you're in Switzerland, I'm here in Singapore. How many bullets does the U.S. have? And, and you know, could this go on in perpetuity? And, and if it's not, when, you know, and I hate using the expression, when's the fat lady going to sing here? And to Gunlock's point, how many of these assumptions about society are we going to keep holding true to, like taxation and, and everything else? But when does this end? Or when, or when do we really have to start having a harder conversation about what we need to do? So, so, so if we're if we're honest about it, uh, to your question of how many bullets are left in the gun, uh, the one bullet that hasn't yet been fired is debt forgiveness. You know, whether we're talking about uh, the Greeks in Europe, whether we're talking about uh, the the Chinese or the Japanese and extending and pretending uh, uh, the debt. Um, as you rightly point out, what is happening right now is we're basically telling people, uh, you don't have to pay, we'll give you another three months, we'll give you another six months. But all that's doing is compounding the debt. And really what we have yet to accept is that at its core, this is not a liquidity problem. This is a solvency problem. There's too much debt um, and there's not enough income to pay for it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so when does this come to bear? Um, I think it comes to bear fairly soon, because as we're seeing, um, you're going to have a lot of these in the U.S. in particular, a lot of these rental, these mortgage uh, forgiveness holidays uh, uh, expire. And I think that's why we, we've seen with the bank earnings in the, in the last couple of days, they're basically getting ready because a lot of this stuff is going bad. Mm-hmm. And, what, and, and along that, you know, because prior to, to our call here, we were, again, talking about the lunch where, you know, now at a sovereign level, the, the ambassador was kind enough to, to go into detail. But, I mean, it, you know, Argentina's in serious trouble. Other South American countries are now in trouble. What, so on the debt forgiveness side, uh, and again, it's kind of ironic given where rates are. So the irony is, like, you know, if you were to refinance, this is probably the best time to do it. Um, is is that really viable? And if it is, who's going to kickstart that process? You know, at the end of the day, is is it the U.S. doing it, or is it a group of countries doing it? How does that possibly begin? Yeah, look, at its core, if you look around the world, the bulk of the debt outstanding, whether it's um, uh, internationally or in the U.S., is U.S. dollar-denominated debt. Um, and so, at its core, uh, the U.S probably needs to be at the center of that forgiveness exercise. It will need to have, obviously, the Chinese, the Europeans, the Japanese, the IMF, et cetera, involved. Um, but I think the challenge with that going forward 
is it then becomes more of a political rather than an economic question. And so are, are the Americans happy to forgive the debt of an ally? Probably. Um, are they less inclined to forgive the debt of somebody who has policies that they disagree with? Probably. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we've seen this in, 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 in the case of how, for example, IMF uh, policies have been implemented in the past. Um, the U.S. Uh, controls the IMF, and so uh, they make it easier or hard uh, for people to get access. Um, and so I think that will come into play as we go into the next phase of this in the future. And are we really shifting gears here slightly? You know, there, there's parallel discussions from a policy standpoint regarding what, what people have called um, face mask diplomacy, where where China r really made a very, very overt global push in terms of relief, uh, a relief effort around COVID. And the and, and the subtlety behind that is obviously they've they've made and we can again expand on this later, but they've obviously made some significant moves relative to Hong Kong. They're talking a little bit louder about a, a digital currency and, and moving away from that dollar dependency. Do you do you so on along that theme of of the sheer amount of dollar denominated debt that's there? Do you have a sense that the world now is looking at the U.S. as the problem and saying, hey, we, we, we need to move away from this? Or, you know, does the rest of the world right now just have bigger fish to fry and, you know, we're really not going to worry about dollar sovereignty? You know, we can kick the can down the road in terms of that discussion, you know, another decade or so. I mean, what really do you think their focus would be? Uh, look, look I, I think there's, there's two pieces to the puzzle. I think the underlying infrastructure of the global economy uh, was really designed for uh, an era long past, if you like. Um, and it was designed for, let's call it the post-war era, um, where uh, the U.S. Uh, was effectively helping the Europeans rebuild, helping the world recover. And then uh, we transitioned into the Cold War. Um, I think where we sit today, I think there was a recognition that uh, perhaps we've outlived that infrastructure, and we, we're basically living on a uh, 20th century infrastructure, uh, mm. but we are growing in a 21st century way. And so I think that imbalance is becoming clear. I think the second piece of that puzzle has to do with, uh, again, leadership. And I think it's fair to say uh, the U.S. Has, 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 seated, has seated its leadership role in the world. Um, I think the Europeans clearly have stepped away over the last uh, three years uh, from the United States. Obviously, there's been conflict uh, with the Chinese directly. And so from that perspective, um, that has compounded this problem of a weak foundation, um, uh, that you haven't had a global leadership that has been able to, one, recognize that, and then try and transition to something more stable. And so is this a function of a new, for lack of a better expression, is this a function of a new Bretton Woods summit? Yeah, look, I mean, that's a, that's a conversation that I've been having with different people about uh, what happens, let's say, in 2021. I think it's pretty clear if the current administration uh, wins the second term. I'm not sure that conversation takes place. Um, but I suspect that if, uh, if um, uh, Joe Biden uh, takes the presidency in January, one of the things that has to take place, at least among, let's say, Western allies, is a conversation of how do we work together going forward? 
because I'm sure the Europeans, the Germans in particular, will say, look, we're, we, we can't go back to where we were four years ago. Um, and so what does this new relationship look like? Um, and I suspect the same conversation will need to take place with the Chinese um, about, it's clear, we won't go back to what the last three years have been, but we also won't go back to where we were four or five years ago. And so what is the new landscape? Um, and so I do think that you know, a new kind of Bretton Woods, a reset of the global system uh, is likely on the cards uh, over the next few years. Well, what would, what would you see as the core tenants underpinning that? So if, if, you, if you were chair uh, of that summit, what would be the two to three high priority items you would say, you know, gentlemen, these are the things we need to start discussing now? Yeah, look, I think that, uh, I mean, if I focus it on uh, three things, if you look over the last uh, few years, how the U.S. has exercised power, um, I think these are the areas where uh, if I'm the Europeans, if I'm the Chinese in particular, um, I probably want a bit clearer um, uh, boundaries about how this is going to work. Um, and one is effectively the U.S. dollar system. Um, so yeah. the U.S. obviously uses the Swiss SWIFT system uh, as a um, as as a tool to punish nations. Um, I suspect the way we will begin to migrate is something that I think everybody uh, was was afraid of when it was Facebook doing it. Um, but I suspect some sort of let's call it global basket currency, uh, a la the IMF basket. Um, I think the, the second piece of the puzzle is uh, the global trade picture. I think the thing, while uh, most people internationally are aghast at how, uh, if you like, the trade war was prosecuted, I think it was very interesting if you talk to people um, in, uh, in, in, uh, with closed doors. I don't think anybody really disagreed that the trade system was imbalanced and favored China, and China took full advantage of it. Mm -hmm. They were happy in that sense that the U.S. was, if you like, beginning the conversation. Um, they weren't happy with the way they were beginning the conversation. So I think that dynamic uh, certainly has to take place, uh, basically a rediscussion of uh, how, uh, how uh, global trade takes place. And I think the third piece of the puzzle uh, has to be uh, with regards to the global digital economy. There's obviously a discussion taking place about um, uh, digital taxes here in Europe. Um, there's discussion of digital currency, how that works. Um, and in that, I would also wrap up this whole uh, cyber uh, discussion, uh, whether if this is, these are cyber attacks or not, it is quite remarkable. Uh, what we've been seeing in Iran over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, just mm -hmm. coincidentally, things keep blowing up. Mm -hmm. um, and who that is and, and how that's being done, uh, I, I do think it highlights the, uh, the, the asymmetric risks of some of these attacks. And so there need to be rules of the game, if you like. And, and let, let the, you said a lot there, which is fantastic, and you did it as three points, which I think is terrific. And, and what, what, let's have some fun with that and unpack it. So if I go to your earlier point, and forgive me, I'm going to oversimplify it. it. You know, it's almost as if, you know, it's kind of similar to uh, the, 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 the Catholic sacrament of confession, where 
the U.S. has violated the, the the confidentiality. You know, so in other words, we've we've to your point, we've used these systems which were supposed to be neutral, in a very punitive manner. And and you know, as some folks have said, the U.S. to a certain extent has almost weaponized the dollar, where the assumption, the working assumption, was that they were never going to do that. You know, where they wouldn't do that. And can the U.S. walk that back? Like, and is it worth the? I mean, do you? And I'm oversimplifying this, but do do the states just simply throw Trump under the bus and say, look, we had a madman sitting in the chair for four years and we're now going to go back to a principled approach to to truly being, you know, the the, the market mechanism and a, and a good steward? Or is the horse so far out of the barn that folks are saying, hey, look, if you had one lunatic sitting in the chair, there's nothing stopping a second one from coming in there. And, and we need more controls around this to safeguard it. Yeah, look, I think that. Um I, I guess the way I would characterize it is, as I talk to different people in Europe, I I think if I if I'm generous about it, um, the trust certainly has been eroded, um, and if I'm less generous about it, um, the emperor today has no clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this, if you like, this image of of America. Uh, post World War II uh, guardian of the liberal democracies. Um, one, I think, generationally, um, certainly on the continent, uh, we've outgrown that. There's a generation that just does not know America as that. Mm-hmm. Um, two, I think the last few years have, uh, both on the Democratic and on the Republican side, I think have undermined um, that. And so I think the ability for the U.S. to basically say, look, you know, he was a crazy guy. Let's go. We'll go back to where we were and everything will be OK. I'm not sure that holds a lot of water. Um, I think the other piece of the puzzle is and I, I think we're seeing this around the world. Um, it's not only in the U.S. that we have seen, if you like, um, the the extremes of the political spectrum start to come into power and start to have bigger voices. And so, again, you know, certainly uh, speaking from Europe, I think there would be a desire uh, to have some safeguards against um, a, a repeat uh, of that. Um, and because of that, I suspect that means necessarily just mathematically um, U.S. influence wanes and others influence rise um, mm-hmm. to placate um, uh, those concerns. And it's interesting because the 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 I, I've always been a believer that the smart money, you know, and and the suicide mission for the states would be to give up dollar sovereignty, but in 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 a way they're they're seeding that, and it's just fascinating. And 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 to your point, let's expand it to 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 the second one. And I I would you know here I'd like to introduce along you know to your point on trade. You know, can we argue to to folks listening to this to this podcast? Could we argue that that globalization is dead? That that in fact COVID has, you know, we've you already had the underlying dynamic of this economic stress that was there already pre-COVID, uh, you know, and 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 this we could argue this nationalistic fervor coming from these mass movements of people being really angry, you know, in terms of wage disparity and wealth, et cetera. But now in a COVID world, are you know, are we going to see the gates drop where where China is going to ring fence China and the U.S. is like you know we've always talked about two inter or two two uh, internets. Is, is that the path forward here? And and are we witnessing you know maybe at least for our generation the, the remainder of time we have with it? I mean, is is globalization over? 
And, and you know, are, are we seeing the demise of what could have, would have, should have been an integrated system now being much more parochial in terms of how it's going to run? Yeah, you know, obviously we've seen quite a lot written and a lot spoken about the the, the death of globalization. Um, I, I'm I'm a bit hesitant to go there, um, just from I, I I guess a couple of different standpoints. I think what we're talking about is um, we've re- probably reached the limits of globalization, um, and the trade-offs one is willing to make. Um, and that in particular is with regards to what I'm going to call the, the manufacturing supply chains. Um, I think as we go forward, like, you know, you can't really move natural resources. And so the coal is where the coal is, the oil is where the oil is, the nickel is where the nickel is. And so to that extent, um, the globalization of raw material um, supply chains will still need to be in place. Um and, and and so to that extent, to, to go fully back and you know, pull back to where we were pre-globalization, I'm not sure is a, uh, is a likely outcome. Um, but I do think, again, uh, it requires um, uh, more precise rules to the game um, than we've had before. Um, and again, I think uh, we, we, we saw a few weeks ago, I think the Chinese and the Europeans who had a bit of a dispute at the WTO for a number of years where the Chinese wanted to continue to be uh, deemed effectively an emerging economy. Um, so they've withdrawn that now and effectively said, okay, fine, let's, let's discuss now how we interact. Um, I think those are discussions that need to be had, in particular with China, just because it's so large, but just generally speaking in terms of uh, how those um, uh, trade dynamics uh, take place uh, going forward. And, and, and alongside that, I, I, I think what's, and again, I may say something here that's hard. And, and again, you and I professionally, um, you know, have the perspective of, 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 of that experience in Asia. But, you know, one, one part of me says that the China is inevitable, you know, and, and has been, and, you know, and all the numbers point to that. But what, one of the interesting anomalies to this, especially watching what's been happening with COVID, is, is also seeing... Um, that, that, you know, there's almost like a hypocritical opinion regarding China where, where folks are saying, yeah, it's a wonderful economy and we'd, we'd love to have, you know, market penetration. But on the other, they, they like, you know, especially with some of the countries here in Southeast Asia, you know, there's still a lot of animosity and lack of trust with China. And I was talking with one colleague and he's like, look, it, it really doesn't matter where they go with their economy because at the end of the day, people simply won't trust them. You know, they, 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 we're, we're just not there yet. And uh, his view is that at the end of the day, you know, the Western nations, he was actually espousing, uh, uh, which I thought was interesting, you know, Angela Merkel as, you know, is now being the only world leader who, who, who could take the moral high ground and potentially lead through this. But, you know, is, is China ready to, 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 you know, sit in the chair despite the rest? And, and, and secondly, will the world let them? Uh, and, and as I say, because here in Southeast Asia, I get the sense that it's a reluctant relationship uh, among constituents here. Yeah, no, look, I, I, I don't think that is just the Southeast Asia view. I do think this is an increasingly um, global view. And I think to that extent, um, China has failed in its, uh, uh, in, in its post-COVID uh, kind of mass diplomacy. 
Um, we've seen the UK has basically reversed its decision on 5G. Um, again, didn't get a lot of headlines, but there was an EU-China summit that resulted in no press conference and no statement, which, as you know, diplomatically means they didn't agree on very much. Yep. Um, and, and really speaks to, I think, the widening gap between Europe and China. Um, and then rightly, I think uh, many in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia are fearful. Um, just because of the size um, and the ability to project power um, in, in that region. Um, and so, so I do think that is uh, in place right now. And I think the challenge if, and, and what, what China essentially has triggered uh, with some of the decisions I, I would say they've made in the last few months has been you are starting to coalesce an informal coalition uh, to try and push back. Um, and I do think Europe is trying to starting to put together um, that type of um, uh, that type of plan, that type of policy. Um, I think the big challenge would be, again, if you if you get a Biden presidency and Biden comes hat in hand to Europe and says, okay, look, we're sorry, we realize we made a mistake. How do we make it right? Um, there is the possibility the Europeans, the Japanese, and the Americans uh, come together, and that's a big enough um, group uh, to sit down and say to the Chinese, look, we need to talk, and we need to mm -hmm. have a very serious discussion. And, and in a way, you know, you and I, uh, I, I love it when we get together, and, and you know, sometimes I, I, I love, we go back to that old quote by Kissinger, where Kissinger used to say, there's no such thing as a coincidence in the Middle East. And as we Let's migrate the discussion slightly westward uh, here from Singapore. And, and if I could stop for the time being, um, uh, and I do want to go to, to Africa and the Middle East, but to a certain extent, couldn't you and I make the argument that the Western powers have made that decision and have acted on it? I mean, one of the things that I think was the press is not talking about, and I'm, and I'm still surprised at how oversimplified their view of it is, but... but uh, you know, on the one hand, you have Ambani with Geo in India, who just raised a ton of money from basically a who's who of Western corporates and PE firms. Uh, he and I love the way one one PE uh, general partner phrased it to me, where he said, "He goes, look, Ambani at the end of the day is the public-private personification of Xi Jinping in India. He is the Indian economy." and you know, and then alongside that, the irony that all of a sudden there's these border skirmishes, you know, at, at Kashmir between the Chinese and the Indians re, re, regarding, you know, the military and, 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 you know, now the Chinese are building apparently roads and infrastructure along that boundary. I, I mean, you could, could we argue that, that the West has said, okay, enough of this. And, and meanwhile, you have Ambani saying, great, you, you can own the IP, you can own the data, we'll drop the gates, you know, come on in. So you've got Facebook coming in, you've got Vista coming in. And it was interesting, you know, just, just in the past 48 hours, you've had Google, um, you know, make substantial investments uh, in India. And, you know, policymakers are now saying, well, maybe that was the move here. Maybe at the end of the day, the West has finally signaled that, look, we need a check in the region. And right now we're going to go with the other uh, uh, you know, the other economy in the world's biggest democracy. And, and maybe is India, you know, my question to you is, is India maybe part of that overt move to say to China enough, it's not working? Yeah, look, I, 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 I do think India plays an important role. Um, 
So I think if you if we just go with Huawei, um, uh, so the Australians got on board relatively quickly. The UK kind of uh, dithered, but eventually it looks like they're coming on board. Uh, the Europeans, again, you know, I think they're going to have the conversation. Um, and so it looked like the Western world was going to be on one end. And the real question for the Chinese was, could they effectively consolidate um, the emerging world? Um, and they were reaching out because they, from, a, um, uh, from, a, from a commodity perspective to Latin America. And so that really left, if you like, India and Africa as kind of those two big pieces of uncertainty. And so if the West can effectively um, bring India into uh, the fold, um, that would start to tilt the balance much more uh, meaningfully. Because again, as you rightly point out, uh, another billion people and a billion people growing faster than China, both in terms of population and economic activity. Um, and it would uh, start to create, again, uh, not only a large economic area, um, but because of that growth profile of India, it would give, uh, I think, the Western economies a little bit more breathing room because then China couldn't just simply wait them out, if you like. Um, and so, so, so I do think it is a very strategic move um, on the part of um, uh, certainly India, uh, but then also on the part of, of Western economies as well to try and bring them into the fold. It's interesting, and 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 you know, and as we move, let, let's continue that thesis and continue to move west. And and, and as to, you know, to your point earlier on the Middle East, it it really augurs the question, you know, in in you know, because the other 800-pound gorilla that you know, and the joke is everybody's focused on COVID, but the the reality is that the huge thing we're not talking about is global chi climate change and moving away from from carbon-based uh, uh, fuels. And you know, to your point on Iran. Where, what is the Western world's view now, you know, of of the region, and and you know, are we now in a period where, relative to oil and the move away from that, uh, you know, do we? I mean, other, you know, I've heard, I've heard, and I'll couch this politically correct, but I've heard Westerners say, you know, we're really not going to need to focus on that as much. So, so to your point, do we just implement a couple of deterrence moves relative to not allowing them to get the military capability they need? Uh, but at the same time, does, does our focus on the Middle East start to dramatically ratchet down, you know, for the next few decades? Have we finally witnessed that, that peak oil, for lack of a better term, uh, environment? I'm not, I'm not sure it does. Um, I, you know, I think there's a couple things going on. Um, at play. I, mean, I thought it very interesting if you look at um, the recently concluded OPEC meetings, so they're looking to increase production a bit. Um, they've done a very good job since they, uh, the, since they cut supply. And, and, and you say, well, why would they increase production? Don't they want higher prices? You know, the U.S. Uh, is seeing some outbreak again. Um, why would they, why would they uh, risk the lower prices uh, if we relapse? And one of the very interesting things is if you look where prices are today, so WTI in the U.S. is running about, let's call it $40 a barrel. Um, there's an interesting study out of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas um, where if you look at U.S. production, including shale, their average cost of production uh, all in is about $50. That's where they break even. 
And so I suspect OPEC is effectively trying to shut down what these high cost producers, in particular in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, um, and if they can do that, then they will hold sway during this, what I'm going to call transition period. Um, so as much as we would like, um, these fossil fuels will be needed to transition uh, the economy to uh, a greener economy. Um, and if if you're Saudi Arabia, and obviously you, you want to get the Russians involved as well, just to keep them on side, um, you want to make sure at least you're kind of uh, uh, overseeing um, uh, that period. Um, uh, and that's that's why I think what's happening uh, will be very important uh, in terms of uh, the Gulf during this transition period. Instability in the Gulf, uh, I suspect, uh, will make it um, will make that transition uh, period uh, bumpy. Interesting. And, and 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 let's continue that that migration west. So we'll 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 jump over the Atlantic and and head to New York City, and. Talk, talk to our listeners a little bit about, you know, on the one hand, you hear market prognosticators saying that the, the equity markets no longer have any relationship to what assets are truly worth. And if you go a layer deeper, folks are saying, you know what, this entire market move has been facilitated by the Fed in, in, in terms of what's there. And the, so the conundrum is, you know, on the one hand, you have people saying, you know, well, it's just overpriced and it's overvalued. And I go back to that old quote by Marty Zweig, you know, never fight the Fed. And, you know, what what is going to or would there ever be an event where, you know, and to your point earlier, when, when, when we start looking at earnings adjustments as it relates to banks starting now to finally recognize how much they're going to have to write off. Uh, you know, as we were saying before we were recording, you know, just in terms of the, the uh, forbearance structures that they had in place. How do, how do we start thinking about the equity market? You know, is there going to be a day of reckoning or, or, or you know, because, again, there's nothing underpinning us. You know, there, there is no growth, there, you know, obviously with COVID. Or, or are, we, are we really looking at something where it could be quite apocalyptic in, in terms of, and again, to, to what we were saying on uh, prior to the recording, you know, is that shock going to come in the fixed income market? You know, and are we finally at a place where the fixed income market's going to say, no, we're done? You know, and is that going to come Q3, Q4 when this forbearance period, you know, expires? Yeah, look, I, I guess, you know, all of this discussion, the equity market doesn't reflect the U.S. economy. I think the equity market is telling you what's happening in the U.S. economy today, not so much in terms of level. But essentially what you have is this huge redistribution of activity. Um, in the U.S. economy. So we used to go to the shopping malls. Now we don't. And we all go to Amazon. And so Amazon is basically taking all of that profit share. Um, and the problem with all these shopping malls, other retailers is they've got all the costs and they've got all the debt. And Amazon doesn't. Same thing with Google. You know, again, you used to advertise in newspapers, magazines, billboards, et cetera, et cetera. You don't do that anymore. You're doing it online. Google basically captures all of that. Um, and so it is really just this redistribution of activity and economic activity. It just so happens the redistribution is going to the largest companies in the country and in, uh, in the world at this point. And so that's why you see the market doing one thing and the economy doing the other. If you strip out kind of a, a lot of these names, essentially the market has done nothing. Um, and, and, and I think that's um, what a lot of people are missing. 
Um, so what, what ends this? I think it's really two things um, that start to be a problem. Um, one, uh, as you rightly point out, so there is a debt problem. People need to service that debt. And if they can't service that debt, then, you know, they're not buying stuff on Amazon. They're not, uh, you know, uh, paying their Netflix subscription, et cetera, et cetera. And you will see the cyclical aspects of what are now very large market share um, owners in these industries uh, start to come into play. Um, I think the second piece of the puzzle uh, really comes down to the sustainability of the model that we have today. Um, so you have a situation where realistically, a large part of the American economy is not making uh, enough money uh, to sustain themselves, whether that's, you know, housing, schooling, et cetera, healthcare. Um, is it then reasonable to expect they will still spend their $15.99 on Netflix and their whatever it is, $100 a year on Amazon Prime? Um, at some point, that starts to break, let alone this issue of will they continue to um, uh, support the current uh, tax regimes that are in place and how taxes are, um, are uh, the tax burden is distributed within the economy. So with that, and, and Norman, I want to thank you. You've been very patient with your time, and I'm going to sneak in one last question. And uh, it won't be uh, whether or not the Yankees are going to win the World Series this year, so I won't ask you that question. But the uh, what would you say to investors now? Because, because again, I'm, I'm just going to play devil's advocate and, and push back on you a little bit. Where, you know, in a way, what we're saying to investors is the market is probably, you know, to, to your point earlier, we're witnessing some really concerning asymmetrical problems that are that that, that we're facing. Uh, Right now, COVID, especially in the United States, doesn't look like it's under anything resembling a controlled situation. Uh, the market looks dislocated, and, and I like the way that you, you, you modeled that in terms of what we're seeing is this redistribution to you know, the supply chain and logistics companies that can deliver efficiently uh, what, what needs to be delivered. But what, what do we say now to investors? I mean, do we, do we you know, wh where and how should they be thinking about the world given how negative the aperture is? And, and again, I'm gonna play devil's advocate with you because part of me feels like it would be hard for you and I, uh, you know, to say to investors, hey, this is a good time to buy the market when, when, you know, on the one hand, we could argue it's incredibly expensive, but on the other, you know, going back to the Marty's White quote, you know, you never fight the Fed. So what, 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 what do you say to investors today? Or is there anything you can say to them? Yeah, look, uh, so, so, so I'll break it down in terms of how, how we're approaching it uh, in terms of advice. I mean, I'm going to put it in the context of how I describe it to my mother. Um, because I think a lot of people, oh, okay, I want to buy some Netflix, I want to buy some Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they want to chase. Um, and I've never been a big fan of chasing. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that you must realize is, is COVID has obviously pushed a lot of activity into, let's call it the digital space generally. The way we look at it is COVID uh, and the associated lockdown has been an accelerator of transformations that were taking place anyway, um, from let's call it analog to digital. And if we go back and, and you and I grew up kind of um, in the late 20th century, <laughs> you remember back in the day 
you know, when we went shopping, we'd go to Sears or we get the Sears catalog. Maybe I'm dating myself now. Um, <laughs> you go through and you kind of pick and you go to the big department store. Yep. And that was kind of how you went shopping. And then all of a sudden you saw a lot of specialty retailers pop up and go, hey, it's just not these things I can buy. I can actually get a different selection from specialty. We're seeing this quite a lot now in the digital realm. Instead of kind of these big single players, um, you're seeing much more specialty with much more focused selection. Um, at, if I'm very honest about it, more reasonable growth rates and more reasonable valuations than some of the bigger names. So you want to be selective and you want to kind of focus on kind of these next layer uh, of trends in terms of evolution. I think the second piece of the puzzle is, is how one risk manages. If we go back again to, you know, pre-2008 or even pre-2000, what a lot of people would do is, okay, I'm going to keep a bunch of money in bonds. Um, that would work. Bond yields fell. You got paid back your money. The credit was reasonably good. As we've talked about, you know, the credit environment going forward is somewhat uncertain. We do think defaults are going to go up. Uh, yields are on the floor, certainly in U.S. dollar. They're negative in other parts of the world uh, as well. So we don't think bonds carry that same safety component. And so we've been using other strategies. I think for normal people, a lot of the strategies we're using uh, may not be available, but we have been looking at things like gold and precious metals as a place, uh, as ultimate stores of value, because we do think the solution to this is essentially governments spending a lot of money and then central banks basically buying the debt that's associated with that spending um, to keep it. Uh, to keep the economies moving. Um, and we think that will be quite good for precious metals. And so there is this barbell approach, this kind of store of value safety combined with this transitional growth. Um, uh, so to us, it is investing alongside that transformation, but then keeping uh, a core of safety and some powder dry in your portfolio. Interesting. And you know, in What's amazing, Norman, and again, I, I, I could keep, you know, I, I wish you and I had a nice glass of wine in front of us because we could keep this going for hours. And, uh, and we got away without talking about uh, Bitcoin. We got out of this without talking about Trump directly. So I, I think we did a good job today. Um, what I want to do selfishly is I want to figure out a way to get you back on again ahead of the election. Uh, I think your points earlier on Biden are, are important. And, uh, and I hate saying this after seeing what happened in the last election, but you know, statistically, uh, this now looks like it's his election to lose. And, and I won't lie, I think a lot of people are nervous about the debates and whether or not you know, if, he, if he commits a classic Biden gaffe and blows it. But I, I, I would love to have you on again in November if, if that's something we could do. Does that sound okay with you? Would love to come back and, uh, and chat about uh, uh, the outcome. Let's do it. Let's do it. And Norman, again, Thank you, as always. My best wishes to, to, to you and your family. And for our listeners, to, for this week's edition of Unhedged, again, thank you so much for, for listening in. We, we wish you all and your families all the very best. Please be safe. Stay well. And uh, Norman, thank you again. And we'll see you on the other side uh, as we get closer to November. Hopefully in, in person in November. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the heck with safe distance. I look forward to that. All right, my friend. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye.